ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your word and the company of the saints, the conversation we have about your kingdom, your son, the life we have in you, your Holy Spirit. We're grateful for all these things, Lord. Give us a life in this community that feeds us that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I was thinking about uh, the wine, wisdom, and song topics. We had about six questions put up on the flip chart. We got through them all. The first one was out of Matthew and uh, uh, 15. And uh, uh, I think it was Jennifer Loveless had put it up there. And it was about, you, you ever get that awful feeling when some major Christian runs their life into a wall, morally, you find out, and they've been misbehaving for a decade or two. Um, you go, how do I deal with this? Well, that, that passage is really the verse, the verse that came up was the, the Matthew version of this Mark 7 from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit. That's the very end of our, our uh, sermon today. So we talked about that. But the, ver the passage at large was on my mind. And um, I had, but I had not thought in terms of preaching on it. Um, and I was thinking about evangelism. And uh, we're, not a, we're evangelicals sociologically. Uh, we believe in the gospel. We believe the lost need to hear the gospel. We trust that you are ready with the gospel. But we don't regularly have evangelism seminars of how to talk to non-believers or, or what the, the, the pressures are. And I was thinking about, well, should I? Well, and when you think about evangelism, the first thing your mind goes to, biblically, is the Great Commission, Matthew 20. Eight, right here at the top, the Great Commission. the last verses of the book of Matthew. And I was looking, because I was thinking, should I have a sermon about the need for the saints, you guys, to be preaching the gospel? I said, boy, man, they might think it's a church growth thing. We're trying to get you to talk to people about Jesus so they will come to all souls so we can fill these dang pews. Pardon my French. Now, as I looked at it, something stood out to me. Let's, look, let's read it. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, just as a reminder for those of you who struggle with doubt, the risen Lord is with you. He has been teaching you for the last three years. You saw him crucified, and you saw him raised, and yea, verily, some still doubt it. Okay, so you're pikers when it comes to doubt. Now, these guys were pros. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the close 
of the age. Now we know, as good evangelicals, that when someone reminds you of the Great Commission, what they're reminding you to do is to be like the apostles and obey this command as if it were to you, right? It, you go out and from anything from buttonholing somebody on the street, cold calling, handing out tracts, dropping them with your tip at the table, talking to a friend about Jesus over pizza, that you're going to be going into all, you know, going to the mission field, going on a short-term mission project, whatever. The Great Commission is there for us to obey. Now, there's discussion as to whether or not it's there for you to obey. He told his disciples, the apostles, to do this. Um, you, you do have to answer the question, well, how do I know that I am told to do this? Because there's some things here you're told to do that, mm, I don't know. How many of you have baptized somebody? I have. I've baptized lots of people. It's a neener, neener. Um, how many of you have taught the saints everything that Jesus has commanded you? And I've been doing it for decades, and I'm still not there yet, but everything the Lord has commanded. Well, so whether or not, you know, I don't really care so much whether or not you feel the Great Commission is to you or was to the disciples, but we're not talking about that this morning. What we're talking about this morning is that in the actual Great Commission, you already have made an appearance. You are the object of the command. You are where it is going to be expressed by the apostles' obedience. Before you could think about whether or not you're going to obey the Great Commission, you have got to be sure that what the Great Commission commanded of the apostles, of our Lord, was accomplished in you. Not that you do what they were told to do, but that you, have been, you are the done of what they were told to do. And too often, because we're a numbers-oriented religion, we've got to compete with the Muslims, got to make sure the Mormons don't get ahead of us. We've got to get out there and start carving some notches in the spine of your Bible. You've got to start getting that you know, new attendees thing. I, we don't have one of those little... You can buy them. I can buy one of those things. Him numbers, attendance last week, attendance this week. What's that for? I really want to jot it down, memorize. There were only 70 people here last week. We're, we, we think that way. And so we want to get people out there in the trenches, already fighting for the kingdom to get people to make disciples of all nations. You say, Evan, you got a problem with this? Making disciples of all nations? No. Go ahead. But your first duty to the Great Commission is to be that which the apostles, you, you're, you're the obedience that the apostles were obeying toward. Have you been made a disciple? It says, make disciples. Have you been made a disciple? Are you baptized? Now, we have a 
a trough downstairs. Used it a couple times. We're Baptistic. But I don't want you to think, say, oh, is this the baptism sermon? Is it where we got to walk forward and sign a card and schedule a period of time where we will baptize you? You know, frankly, I don't think that's what you ought to be thinking about. I've been reading recently in the Gospels, John the Baptist, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus repeats that in the first chapter of Acts. I am going to baptize you. John baptized you with water, but I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then Peter, Saint Peter, repeats it in Acts 11, after his leading Cornelius to the Lord. And when he reports it to the Jerusalem uh, Christians, he says, And I remember when the Holy Spirit fell on them, what the Lord said, in Acts 1, that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. The water baptism was just, well, how could we fit, forbid water for those who've received the Holy Spirit just as we? So the baptism, Christian sacrament of baptism, the only sacred baptism you should be seeing as necessary is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not have Christ. We can argue as to whether you get sprinkled, as to whether you get dunked, whether it's head upstream, head downstream. Um, different Different views of the water. The water is just the image. We don't want you, we want you to at least be able to answer the question. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I don't know if my infant baptism, because I was raised a Lutheran, uh, is good enough. I still haven't worked that out yet. But I know I have passed from death to life. I'm not just a follower of the teaching of Christ, a disciple in that sense. I am baptized in the Christian sacrament of baptism, which is the Holy Ghost. Are you? Learning to be obedient to Christ. Teaching them, that's you, them, you were made disciples, you got baptized in the important sense, and you are being taught to observe all that Christ commanded. So, that's when you get to say, yes, I am the obedience of the apostles in the Great Commission. Now, in this, as I was thinking about this, I realized how important, because I, I came back to this passage when we talked about it Friday night, came back to the Great Commission, and I'm starting with it now so that you're thinking along these lines, not about your obedience to it, but you being the obedience of it. This is Christ's command to his disciples. 
They were the people who had heard him teach throughout his ministry, and the Holy Spirit was going to be given to them to remind them of everything Jesus taught them. That's what he says later in John. That the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would remind them of everything the Lord taught them. They were given his authority. Look at here in uh, Luke um, 10, 16. He who hears you, hears me. This is Christ speaking. And he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Telling that to the disciples. 1 John 4, 5. They are of the world, therefore what they say is of the world, and the world listens to them. We are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And he who is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So not only in the Great Commission, but in a, an apostle saying later in his ministry, and, and Luke relating how God gave authority to his disciples, we know that, that at least the authority of Christ to do this, to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them, was handed to the disciples. This coupled with, Brianna had a question at uh, uh, the Wine Wisdom Song the other night, too, about the nature of the authority of the apostles. And it, this came up. This is sort of a combination sermon on the basis of a group of the questions. Church, Christianity, I don't know if you've paid any attention over the last 2,000 years. You don't want to have some Christian talk show host do jaywalking, you know, uh, um, who's that talk show host? Jay Leno would go out on the street, ask people obvious questions, you know, about who's the vice president. And they had no clue. Educated, job-holding, mortgage-paying people didn't know who the vice president was. You don't want that to happen to you about the church, right? Some Christian talk show host coming to you. Uh, um, how long has the church been around? Uh, 70 years? Uh, do you, what do you know? Well, I'm not a, uh, you know, I love history. I'm a big fan of studying history. It is not your Christian duty to be involved in the history of Christendom, but, but, one of the things you benefit from is the realization of how wrong we have been. C.S. Lewis bemoaned the fact that he would not have the chance to write a book that gave a history of all the sins of the church against the world. Wouldn't that have been sweet? Now, why am I saying this? Because when the authority is given, we naturally go, the authority to Jesus, to the apostles, then of course we're supposed to obey this commandment too. It's a passing on of the, the baton, the torch. And the different churches will have different ways of registering how the baton got passed. But everybody wants the authority of the apostles to register with one, the pastor. By whatever means, the apostolic succession, the laying on of hands, something. Ordination. When I married my son to Manisha, 
some years ago. Uh, the New York Times called me up, the New York Times. I regularly speak with them. <laughs> Their wedding page, because New York Times wedding page is the wedding page in the nation. And Davis and Manisha were going to have their, their wedding story on the New York Times. And he was very confused. What do you mean you're not ordained? Well, a while ago, some people from an evangelical free church said it would be okay. Where do you have your denominational fill? I'm not a part of it. They, they were just, their mind was blown. They, they had a hard time crafting a sentence that would describe why I was legitimately marrying my own son in New York. Strange, strange things. But people are always that way. They, they're looking at some way of transferring all this power and authority because there's a lot of power and authority in religion. Now, I want to let you know that the church has been up to no good for 2,000 years, and many, much of it is because of what has happened regarding the leadership of the church, people in my position, misleading the saints, doing bad things, and eventually sometimes ending up like the last part of that Mark passage I read you earlier. Evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And you don't want that out of ministers of the gospel. So when I said that you were going to be, be the obedience for the Great Commission, made disciples, baptized in the meaningful sense, and observing what the Lord commanded you, there's the underlying assumption that that comes to us through the apostles. That he is sending them out to do it. They are the ones obeying it. So the stuff you believe, the stuff in your head, religiously, that you believe, some of that is trickle-down apostolic, and some of it is not so much. And when people want you to have as much trust in your current pastor, this is what Mark was talking about, that you just believe what the professionals tell you. And I am a professional. And we had white lab coats. Well, you do have robes, don't they? The churches have robes. If I had a clerical collar, Victoria's and Nathaniel's mom really pushed me to start wearing a clerical collar because she couldn't believe it. She was visiting here at the church, and all souls Christian, steeple, white. Here I was standing around in dockers, you know. And uh, boy, a clerical collar would really dress that up. And you'd believe me then, wouldn't you? You would say, well, it's strangely compelling. Funny little you know, notch in the collar. We're looking for ways of getting you to believe what we tell you. But before we even get into the Mark passage, you say, Evan, it's quarter after. You haven't even touched the Mark passage. I, <laughs> And I'm afraid. <laughs> Are you afraid? You know, someday, God being merciful to you, you'll be a pastor. And you will thank me then for setting the example of never shortening the sermon. 
But no, I'm going to go through that pretty quickly. But I want you to be thinking in terms of when I say I am the object of this obedience, I am the disciple, I am the baptized, I am the one who is brought into obedience to what the Lord taught because I believe that God gave his apostles the authority to do that. Whether or not he gave anybody else authority after that, that's a separate question. So how would we answer that? Do you have to believe your pastors? Or do you have to believe St. Augustine or the Apostolic Fathers? Do you have to believe, you know, Luther? Who do you have to believe? Here in Acts 20, 26. And I want you to know that no matter how good the seminary, how faithful the seminary, I don't care who founded it. I don't care if it was Charles Finney. I don't care if it was John Wesley. Therefore, I testify to you this day, this is on the left-hand side, Acts 20, 26, that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Paul is talking here at Miletus to the Ephesian elders. He had taught them for three years. Passing nearby, they come down to the coast to see him. He's telling these pastors who he had trained, look at this, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So, not only did the, the doubters up there in the Great Commission have Jesus for three years and then the raised, risen Lord and still doubted, but here he's saying, I had St. Paul. St. Paul. The guy who wrote most of the New Testament teaching me in seminary class for years and he claims himself that the whole counsel of God that he had been faithful to the command of the Great Commission. He had taught everything the Lord had commanded. The whole council. So the seminary doesn't get any better than that. The passing on of the baton. I was ordained by the Apostle Paul. Pretty good claim. The Apostle Paul laid hands on me. You're some metropolitan bishop in the late first century, and you had Paul lay hands on you. Do we believe him? Well, some of you would go, well, yeah. I, I have a book called The Christian Mind by Harry Blamers. And Harry Blamers, it's a good book. It's a good book. It's not stunning, but it's a good book on Christian thinking. He was C.S. Lewis's student. Oh, it's a better book now. <laughs> Read Austin Farrar, who was C.S. Lewis's chaplain. Oh my gosh. In the same room with him once, breathed the same air as he, the great man. So I must believe Austin Farrar. I kind of want to believe the unbeliever Owen Barfield, because he knew C.S. Lewis too, but he's an unbeliever. But we're silly. St. Paul says. I was there for years. I'm innocent. I taught you everything. Your pastors now, look at it, says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his son. Do you realize how important this body is? 
the Holy Spirit blessing what you do because God has called these people out at the cost of Jesus' death. I know, verse 29, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And listen to this. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So it doesn't matter how good the seminary. Doesn't matter who laid hands on you. You have a task. And it, if you've been put in that position by the biggest bona fides and the biggest you know, ticket Ivy League Christian Academy, if Billy Graham rubbed elbows with you at a prayer breakfast, doesn't matter. Perverse things come out of people that were laid hands on by the apostle, that he taught, that he committed years of his life to. Maybe sitting there, if you're paying attention, um, going, Evan, this is this is um, a bit rebellious. This kind of notion of yours, real radical Anabaptist. Uh, you're just saying this because it's a tiny church you're in. Yeah, okay, no doubt. Can we really cast off all of our religion that has developed? Because remember, some people hold the notion that development of Christianity through the centuries is part of the faith you must believe. You have just as big a debt to the confessions and to the creeds and to certain notable bishops because they were certain notable bishops. And nobody stops to check, hold it, did they speak perverse things? Because the only people I know have the authority of Jesus Christ are his apostles. And since I know that the most highly ranked second generation pastor laid hands on by the apostle, taught by the apostle, Paul himself predicts that out of among them men will arise speaking perverse things, hoping to lead disciples after them. So I'm in trouble. I can't trust the church. Now, this is why I have the Mark 7 passage. We had been looking at the Matthew 15 passage. This is the synoptic account. It's basically the same thing. The only reason I'm having the Mark 7 passage here is I think I spoke out of the Matthew passage just a year or so ago, and I hadn't spoke on this passage in five years. So that's, I'd like to rotate which, which one you're looking at. Now when the Pharisees gathered together to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, observing the tradition of the elders and your mother. And when they come from, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they purify themselves. And there are many other traditions which they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and vessels of bronze. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with hands defiled? And he said to them, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize the tradition of the church. 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. He's not a, he's not a really friendly tone. Like whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You hypocrites. Now this is all occurring in the real religion. This is not Baal worship. He's condemning. This is Yahweh worship. Going on faithfully over centuries. The temple having the observances. Herod had built this wonderful temple and the and the Jews had fulfilled all the obligations, and it was busy, busy, busy in Jerusalem at the temple. We know that no matter how true the faith, the religion that develops around it has certain tendencies, and that religion makes certain sins sort of inevitable. Basically, When he says, he gives a little example here. Uh, after verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold fast the tradition of men. Got that? Leave the commandment, hold to the tradition. We generally think that because the tradition becomes a commandment and somehow becomes more important a commandment. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God through your tradition, which you hand on, and many such things you do. When Jesus lays this out, he says, there's a war between what is said with authority and what is said as a precept of men. And when we start giving credit to the precepts of men as if they were teachings of the church, if we start concentrating on a worship not that is faithful but is vain, we begin to realize that our lips are the only place the living God is honored. Right there, right that's the surface. You can go to all sorts of unbelieving churches and you'll see Christ hanging on a cross. You'll see great windows saying great things. You will hear in the mass or in the, uh, the liturgy or in, um, if it's a Protestant evangelical church, everyone speaking very highly of Jesus. You know it's possible. You've read the liner notes of country artists. I'd like to thank Jesus. They always thank Jesus. Black artists and country artists thank Jesus. Doesn't matter what their lives are like. They always thank Jesus. Football players in the end zone always point to heaven. Now some of them are real Christians, but I suspect not all of them. Something about football. We have ways of including Christianity on every front except the real front. Except having made disciples, being baptized, and being obedient. And not following a perversity that came down to us from the apostles. 
Oh, I might be able to track the generations. Everybody say, well, I want to join this church, the Greek Orthodox or the Roman Catholic or, or the Syrian Antiochian church. Because it goes all the way back to the apostles. Yeah, what generation did they start speaking perverse things? Since he says there are many such things you do, many such things you do, you might want to say, hold it, maybe I ought to go looking. It's amazing what has been ignored in the scriptures, the teaching of our Lord, the teaching of his holy apostles, that I can surprise Christians with. I could, be, I could surprise them. They go, what? Actually, never knew this occurred, or, or could be. We've been talking recently a lot to a lot of people about confession of sin, getting right with God, and it's amazing how few Christians do it, think about it, even know about it. But even that, you'd have to stop and say, okay, Evan, is that, a, is that your Jim Wilson's perversity? You know, well, I want you to ask that. You have to ask yourself, is it because the only thing you could do, that's what you're left with, is since there's this huge danger called the religion that is got Christ's name all over it on its lips, that's got a worship that's well designed, but just essentially Baal worship, like those Baal priests dancing around, cutting themselves with knives and Elijah mocking them because maybe their God wasn't hearing them. Their worship was in vain, no matter how devout and how much vigor they put into it. And do you, have you been taught to obey the Lord? We uh, need to hunt them down. We know this is the challenge to what Christ recommends. He says, religion's not going to do it for you. <coughs> Religion, precepts of men, vain worship, lip service, are challenges to your obedience to God. And we ramp up. You're tempted to make yourself more religious as your heart is not made right with God because you're not at peace, because you're not right with God. You're not at peace. So the church says, well, maybe if you got involved in our youth program, maybe if you got in your, are involved in our singles and college program, maybe if you went through this 10 basic steps to whatever uh, Bible study series, uh, maybe if you you know, join the worship team. If you be, they're, they're, they're giving you religion. But somewhere along the line, the apostolic teacher will say, the apostles told you this, that our Lord said this. This is what the apostles said. And you can go check, because there's a book where the apostles wrote it down and sent it to people. And they made copies, and now you have one. And you can go check. You've got to hunt down the traditions, because the traditions will cause you to leave the commandment 
You will no longer be the obedience to the Great Commission. You will be the obedience to the history of the church. And you'll feel all warm and kind of schmarmy about it and pious and, and your pastor might wear a collar. You will feel all sorts of things. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a man which by going into him can defile him, but the things which come out of a man are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, and that's what you can say to your mom when she tells you to wash your hands, children. Mother, it is not what goes into me that defiles me. Go to your room. That's what, that's what happens next, you know, and, and probably a spanking. These traditions, they've got to stop. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach? and so passes on. Because we're concerned, as real Christians, as to what enters your heart. Thus, thus he declared all foods clean. Religion is going to be full of all sorts of traditions that have you jumping through all sorts of flame and hoops of fire to get your religion right. And he said, what comes out of a man is what defiles a man, for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a man. So, you have to find a religion that changes your heart, that changes your behavior, religiously, not gives you something pious to trot around after nodding and ducking and weaving and whatever it is you do. You have to find a way that you can run a dipstick into your heart because it's your heart that is changed by the teaching of the Christ and his apostles. That's what they were about. That faith that saved, the Holy Spirit that empowered you, that changed you into the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. The opposite of this. And then we wonder why in the middle of the church that great Christian leaders suddenly run off with their mistress. Hopefully a girl. Hopefully. Boy, what a relief. It was adultery, but at least it was heterosexual. It isn't always. Where did they come from? Well, these were men who built their lives following... All sorts of precepts of men, teaching as doctrines, replacing the commandment of the Great Commission with it. That's what the church has been. It's been a clearinghouse for those things. Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? That's out of context. That's out of the Pentecost sermon. But I wanted that phrase, what shall we do? We're trying to find Christ and his apostles' teaching. That's what we're looking. We want to be in as close an obedience to the great, we want to be the obedience to the great commission. We want to be the effect of their obedience. 
That means I have to be made a disciple by them. I have to be baptized in the way that is important to Christ. And I have to be obedient to my Lord. If I think about me being the obedience of the Great Commission, rather than trying to obey it with whatever group you're trying to grow, I'll have the direct path, the contrary position from what is what it passes as religion these days. You won't end up being the person who doesn't have a heart. Remember, their heart is far from me. Don't let it happen. Let's thank God. Dear Lord God, we are grateful. Watch over us. Help us understand how to discern between traditions of the church and the teaching of your apostles and your son. Lord, help us become disciples of that, pursuing it, desiring to be obedient to your son and what he taught, being given the spiritual power to do so by our faith and by growing these things, Lord, in us, that we would not build a religion in your son's name around it. Keep us from it, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.